Brothers, first I want to call your attention to the, um, the prayer card uh, in, in the folder for uh, Chris Mamone, who um, had been coming to this, um, this retreat for, uh, well, as long as it's been going on, so 20 years. And, um, and he died suddenly last weekend and will be greatly missed. Uh, this Mass is being offered for the repose of his soul. And I ask you to please uh, keep him in your prayers. Uh, he he, he brought, always brought something to this day just by his presence, his goodness, and uh, I think uh, took a lot away as well. So uh, please keep him in your prayers and uh, keep also in your prayers the, the consolation and strengthening of his, of his wife and uh, his children. In the last talk, I spoke of, of St. Peter. Now I'd like to turn to a, another apostle, of course, that's St. John, uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved, as he tells us, right, in his gospel. Um, now, we probably identify more with Peter than with John, uh, because, you know, Peter is, one of the reasons he's lovable is because we sympathize with him, because we want to do great things, and we end up failing. And we see that happening to Peter. There's a certain sympathy there. Uh, well, John, you know, we, we don't hear about those feel, failings, do we? And uh, he kind of he might appear to be like the teacher's pet, uh, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Um, but, you know, that phrase is very important to understand properly because it, it does sound funny, doesn't it, that, that he himself is saying, just by the way, I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. But the, the reason for his including that is, is, is to highlight uh, what Jesus does for the disciples whom he loves. John doesn't intend to confine it to himself. He, he's giving a description of the one who loves and is beloved by our Lord. What's interesting is that Peter, when he's asked, do you love me more than these? Do you, do you love me more than the other guys do? And Peter says, yes. And our Lord doesn't dispute it. Uh, but John is the one who clearly, ha- our, our, for whom our Lord had a special affection. Uh, but John calls attention to it not to brag, but to sort of flag what traits and what gifts characterize the disciples, each of us, whom Jesus loves. And so I'd like to, to point out two virtues that we find in John and um, and the vices that uh, they fight against. And the first virtue is, is magnanimity. And in fact, we just, um, we just had this passage, uh, was it last weekend or the week before? I can't remember. But it's James and John. So John and his brother, his older brother James, going to our Lord and requesting the privileged seating at the eternal banquet in heaven or the, the, the privileged thrones in his kingdom. Uh, which is a bold request, but not a bad one. They, they, now they had, they, our Lord, it, it's sort of a bait and switch. Our Lord says, well, can you drink the cup that I am to drink? And can you, can you be baptized with the baptism with which I am to be baptized? And they say, we can. And he says, well, okay, well, that will happen. But as far as, as, far as the seats, that's not for me to give. And so he sort of, you know, draws them into it and says, well, but I still can't give you what you want. Uh, but that response on their part, we can. Uh, that, there's, there's a magnanimity there. There's a desire for greatness. 
That's a good thing. It needs to be purified, and it will be purified. But that instinct, that desire for something great, that is something that, that, that we should imitate and admire in them. James and John are also the ones in another, uh, another part where they asked the Lord if they should call down fire from heaven on a certain town that didn't, didn't receive him. Uh, that kind of gives you a spirit of James and John. Of course, this is St. John's Parish, and John would have been very at home in McLean, Virginia. He was a type A personality. Um, and, uh, you know, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven on them? And the Lord said, you know, why don't you guys just you know, step down a bit? Um, so again, we find that, that, that zeal that needs to be purified, that magnanimity, that greatness of soul, a desire for greater things. It's there in John. And we see it being purified as he is at the foot of the cross. That desire for something great prompts him to go and be where none of the other apostles were, standing at the foot of the cross, being with our Lord in his agony and being with Our Lady there as she shares in that agony as well. Magnanimity, a greatness of soul, a desire for great things, uh, a spirit of generosity. That is something that, that, that we need to pray for. Uh, in, in, in the Psalms, the, the English is, you, you have enlarged my heart, which is, you know, it's, the, the Latin is dilatasti cormeum. You've dilated my heart. It's a very powerful image. You've kind of stretched out my heart for greater things. And we allow our hearts to be, to be dominated by lesser things. So magnanimity, that's, that's one thing we learned from John. And the other is joy. Uh, at the Last Supper, John's Gospel, uh, he records our Lord's words about joy. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Uh, our Lord is, is preparing to give his life on the cross, and he's speaking about joy. And, of course, John writes about the same thing in, in, his, in his first letter. We are writing this to you so, so that our joy may be complete and sharing it with you, in effect. And, and so that, that's also characteristic uh, of John. And joy, of course, is distinct from pleasure. Uh, pleasure is it's a physical phenomenon. Uh, it's just when you're sort of warm and well-fed. Um, Joy is an outgrowth of charity. When we love, of course, one of the fruits of that is joy. So these two things, and what do they fight against? Well, the magnanimity, the, the opposite of magnanimity, the vice uh, that it opposes is pusillanimity, which is just a great word, pusillanimity. And somebody dominated by that vice is pusillanimous. Now, it just sounds bad. I mean, before we define it, it just, you just don't want to be called that. Um, it's a smallness of soul, a stinginess of heart. Not trusting God enough to dare great things. Not desiring more in our relationship with, with the Lord or in our service of him. It's what uh, I heard one, one speaker call the heresy of minimalism, uh, proclaiming less than the gospel asks, uh, 
and asking the faithful less than the gospel demands. Uh, pusillanimity is, is making peace with the world and, uh, and then not understanding why the world doesn't respect us. It's, it's just sort of this smallness. Uh, it's settling, settling um, for the lesser evil, so-called, instead of striving for the greater good. This is what's so appealing about St. Ignatius of Loyola in founding the Jesuits, he, you know, the, the motto, ad maiorum dei gloriam, for the greater glory of God. And I think, you know, most of us would think, for the glory of God is, that's fine. That's good enough. But St. Ignatius says, no, for the greater glory of God. Uh, there's that, that spirit of, of magnanimity. And uh, again, and then joy fights against sadness, obviously. Um, and again, sadness of soul. And I want to point out two vices, two, two of the seven deadly sins that are really described as a form of sadness. Envy. And we see this in the apostles. Just saw it in that, that gospel the other week. When James and John are striving for this greatness, the other apostles start like nudging one another and say, look at these guys. Uh, envy is a resentment or a sadness in somebody else's good in somebody else's striving, in somebody else's virtue or gifts. That's what envy is. It's looking at it and being saddened by it instead of rejoicing that God has, has shown his glory in, in yet another way. Brothers, this has been described as the priestly vice. We see it in the apostles. Our Lord at one point asks, what were you discussing along the way? And what were they discussing? Which one of them was the greatest? And then at the Last Supper, they get into the same argument. Envy is a sadness. A sadness in, not just in another's good, but a sadness in God's generosity. So in Matthew's Gospel, the parable of the, of the laborers, is the, the parable that none of us like, kind of, it's kind of like the prodigal son in that regard. Um, it, it's the, you know, the laborers who, who come... And they work maybe like one hour tops, you know, as the sun is setting. And they get paid the same amount as everybody else. And, and we rightly say that's, that doesn't seem quite fair. And the, the, the parable concludes with, with the, the landowner, the foreman, whoever it is, saying, are you envious because I am generous? And that gets to the heart of envy. Envy is a sadness in God's generosity. Sort of resenting that he was... Generous in the way that he chose to be generous. Another of the seven deadly sins that's really a sadness is sloth. And I, some of you have heard me speak on this before because I, I, I do think it is the dominant vice of our culture. Uh, sloth is a sadness um, in the things of God. It's not, just, it's not just boredom. It's not just laziness. It's kind of looking at what God has done and yawning. As Chesterton says, there's only one sin, to call a green leaf gray. <laughs> it's a green leaf. To, to, to look at the, the, the glory of God's creation and yawn and say, eh, it doesn't interest me. I'm still, still saddened by it. Um, and, and sloth can be disguised as, um, with busyness. And this is what we do a lot of times. We remain very, very busy. Uh, I'm too busy to pray. That's the voice of sloth right there. I'm too busy to turn my attention 
and to delight in the things of God. The Pharaoh put the Israelites, the Hebrews at that time, uh, put the Hebrews to work and increased their labor precisely so they would not listen to God's messenger, Moses. And we very often can keep busy precisely to keep the voice of God at bay. Uh, what envy and sloth have in common is this sadness. Sadness in God's generosity, sadness in the things of God. And joy fights against those. Joy, it takes some effort to remind ourselves of God's goodness and to choose to rejoice in those things. Now, why do I bring these up? Well, because I think in the crises that we're facing, there's a degree of pusillanimity, isn't there? Or there has been. There's been a settling. There's been a compromising with the world, not wanting to go after things too great, you know, not, not wanting to dare things, uh, but settling, compromising. Uh, minimalism, not asking too much of the faithful because, well, then, you know, not proclaiming the hard teachings because it might rock the boat a little bit. You know, just sort of a, a certain kind of cowardice about things, a smallness of heart in proclaiming the gospel, and a smallness of heart in striving for holiness. If anything, these crises should, should prompt us to, to magnanimity, to greater generosity. I, I, want to, I want to proclaim more things more boldly. I want to live uh, the Christian life more deeply. And, of course, sadness. Uh, this sadness that's been inflicted upon us uh, and that we're, we can be tempted to give into. Tempted to give into, into sadness. And I think more than anything else, it can take the form of sloth. Uh, not to say that you are immune from envy, uh, but in our world, there are just so many things that are offered to us to take our minds off of things and to just, just be comfortable and turn away from the things of God because, you know, in crises like this, the things of God become too difficult, don't they? Because they call us to, to generosity and they call us to a battle and they call us to invest ourselves more. And that's tiring. Uh, spiritual combat can only be engaged in with a spirit of joy. Uh, again, great Chesterton line, the great gales of Ireland are the men that God made mad, for all their wars are merry and all their songs are sad. One of the greatest descriptions of the Irish. You know, they're always kind of, you know, singing in battle <laughs> and, you know, laughing in battle and then singing sad songs. Uh, but there is something to that, that... that the happy warrior. Our Lord speaks of joy at the Last Supper. He's not morose. Uh, he's not saddened. He's speaking of joy because he's, because he's magnanimous, because he's giving himself. You know, these, these vices feed, feed on one another, don't they? That the, the, the more slothful we are, the sadder we become, and the less we're going to give. And, well, the virtues feed on themselves, too. They build one another up, rather. And so that joy gives a certain alacrity to our virtues and should, should inspire us to give more. Because the Lord has gone before us in joy. 
One of the most powerful scenes in The Passion of the Christ, uh, which is, it's not, it's not strictly, you know, it's not scriptural, it's not historical, but it's theologically accurate. And it's when Our Lady rushes to our Lord after he's fallen under the weight of the cross, and he stands up and he says, see, I make all things new. There he is in his passion. He's speaking about renewing things in his passion. And this brings us to the greatest gift that John received and, and the greatest virtue that John shows us, which is devotion to the Blessed Virgin Mary. The opening prayer for this Mass, it's the Mass for Our Lady of Sorrows, uh, speaks of Mary participating in the Passion of Christ, or rather, the Church participating in Mary's standing at the foot of the cross. That's where we are, brothers. We're with John, standing with Mary as her, in the midst of her son's Passion. The Church reproduces in herself the life of Christ, in every element of it. So we should never be surprised that the church is betrayed by her own and that she, she suffers an agony in this world. The church is always, not just walking the same path as Christ, but reproducing in herself and in her members the elements of Christ's life, including his passion. And just as you know, those who loved our Lord should have rushed to him when they saw his physical suffering, when they saw him in his agony. Others turned away. Others, some mocked him. But those who loved him should have rushed to him in his weakness. That's what we should do for the church. Because the church is Christ's passion stretched throughout history. We should rush to her in her weakness. And in so doing, we're rushing to him. We're being like Our Lady. Going to him in his weakness, as it's represented in the church. And so our Lord says to Mary, woman, behold your son. Woman, hearkening back to the feast, or to the wedding feast at Cana, when, when Mary shows great magnanimity in stepping forward, interceding for the couple. And our Lord kind of, in a sense, warns her or brings to her attention that if you set this into motion, things will be completely changed. Woman, how does this concern of yours involve me? And, and Mary, Mary is not afraid of being changed by the intercession that she makes. And here she is at the foot of the cross, and the change has really come about. Now she becomes not just his mother, but our mother. Which means we should take her, of course, as our mother. But before we get to that, it also means that we have to be willing to be changed when we intercede. And this is a lot of the reason why we don't intercede, we don't pray, because we sense, if I start praying, I might have to change. Interceding for someone is not a detached activity. It's not, I'm, I'm interceding for that person over there. No, it means holding that person within us, in our heart, and praying for that person and allowing ourselves to be changed as well. In Mary, we see magnanimity. Magnificat anima mea dominum. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. My soul magnifies the Lord, she says. That is the example of magnanimity. Perhaps this is why John is drawn to Our Lady. They're kindred spirits, right? Mary's soul magnifies our Lord. We should pray for that same. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, she says. She's joyful. And even at the cross, Despite the sadness, despite 
the, the sword piercing her heart at that moment, despite the horror of it all, there is still that capacity for joy. There is still that rejoicing which is waiting for his resurrection. From that hour, the disciple took her into his home. It's not like he just like gave her a place to live. That's not what that passage means. He took her into his own, into his own concerns, his own, his own life, his own heart. Brothers, that's most of all what we should imitate in St. John. And we should have that in mind, especially at this point in the church's history, when we, we have a keen sense of our Lord's agony being represented in the church. We should also have a keen sense that Mary it now is being entrusted to us as our mother for us to take her into our own lives and to imitate her greatness of soul, her desire to be there at the foot of the cross and share in this suffering, and her joy, that joy that the seeds of which are sown in the soil of Calvary and which will bear fruit on Easter Sunday. May Our Lady of Sorrows intercede for us to bring us that greatness of soul, that magnanimity, to stand with our Lord and his church in, in its agony. And, and even in the midst of this, to find joy in knowing that we are with him and he is with us.